The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Certain provisions um, are more successful at making their way to passage if we don't talk about them. Um, obviously, we talked a great deal about kind of the development um, and debate over this proposal to reform the Electoral Count Act, um, which was worked on, as you said, by members of the Senate and marked up in Senate committees earlier this year. But then I think in part to sort of get it across the finish line and given the way that some of the issues related either directly or less directly to January 6th have gotten increasingly politicized. And obviously the January 6th committee is in the process of releasing its final report and documents. I think that this this notion that maybe if we sort of didn't talk about the fact that Electoral Count Act reform was in the omnibus, that that would perhaps make it less likely that someone would use its presence to jeopardize the prospect of the overall bill. I'm Scott R. Anderson, and this is the Lawfare Podcast for December 23rd, 2022. Over the past few weeks, Congress has slowly brought two of its biggest pieces of annual omnibus legislation to the finish line, the National Defense Authorization Act, or NDAA, and the Consolidated Appropriations Act. Both annual endeavors play essential complementary roles in our political system, and often become vehicles for an array of otherwise unrelated provisions, including many related to national security. And even by the usual standards of Congress, this year's process has been a chaotic one. To discuss, I sat down with my fellow Lawfare Senior Editor and Brookings Institution colleague Molly Reynolds. We talked about the process that led to this year's bills and highlighted some notable items that are in them and some notable items that aren't. And we did it all even as the last set of votes on Senate amendments to the Appropriations Act were rolling in, which threw us a few curveballs along the way. It's the Lawfare Podcast for December 23rd, what to make of the 2023 NDAA and Consolidated Appropriations Act. So Molly, we are reaching the end of this Congress and the end of the year. And that, of course, means we are deep in the midst of a couple of major pieces of legislation that have national security relevance and are relevant to lawfare listeners everywhere. One being, and probably the most notable one being in some regards, the National Defense Authorization Act, where we are almost through that process now, kind of waiting on the president's signature. And the other being the omnibus appropriations bill, which has a lot of non- defense, non-national security related stuff kind of wound into it a little bit, in addition to some core defense appropriations bill that's kind of the companion 
to the NDAA, the appropriations provision that gets the money to support what the NDAA authorized in a lot of regards. This is kind of an annual process. Uh, It is an annual process, annual kind of tradition we go through with these big bills every year. And because they are often seen as kind of must pass bills by the president, they often become kind of Christmas trees where you see a lot of different provisions hung on um, one or both of these bills that have particularly defense or national security related relevance. And this year has really been no exception. But we have seen kind of a little bit of a different procedural process, particularly in the NDAA context, in addition to the kind of omnibus process. So while we start with the NDAA, can you give us a little bit of background about what the NDA process has looked like this year and the extent to which it's been a little bit different than maybe in prior years and why and, and how that's impacted it substantively and procedurally? Sure. So in Congress uh, in recent years, uh, we've generally thought that kind of at the end of the year every year, Congress will do at least two big must-pass bills. One is the NDAA and one is um, an omnibus appropriations bill. And in both cases, and I think we'll talk more about the omnibus a little bit later, even though the process by which they're kind of passed at the end of the year might look a little bit unorthodox in that they often end up carrying a lot of other unrelated provisions across the finish line, usually through the part earlier in the year where the bills are actually developed, that part still proceeds, you know, pretty much like it's kind of designed or intended to. So in the case of the NDAA, that means that um, in both chambers, the relevant committees, the um, House Armed Services Committee, the Senate Armed Services Committee, kind of worked to develop their NDAA proposals. Um, the House actually passed its version of the NDAA in July. The Senate Armed Services Committee reported out a version, so it kind of did it, it its piece of the work. But the Senate did not actually pass its own version on the floor. And that's um, not unheard of, but somewhat unusual. Um, And because the Senate had not passed kind of its own version, the two chambers were not set up for a formal conference committee process. So in kind of the textbook version of the Congress, the House and the Senate will each pass their own version of a bill. And then some members of both chambers will come together for a temporary, what's called a conference committee. Um, Usually those are folks who are members of the committees of jurisdiction for the piece of legislation in their respective chambers. And so they'll come together and they'll negotiate a compromise version of whatever the bill is. And then that compromise will go back to the House and to the Senate for passage before it goes on to um, to the president. Um, Because the Senate did not pass its own version of the NDAA this year, we ended up with what some folks referred to as a pre-conference process. That's really not a specific term. Um, It basically just means that the negotiations over the final version of the legislation were handled outside of a kind of formal prescribed conference committee process. That alone is not that unusual in the contemporary Congress. We've actually, um, as our Brookings colleague Sarah Binder in part has documented, we've seen a massive decline in the use of formal conference committees for all kinds of things in the um, in Congress in recent uh, years. So in that sense, kind of what we have seen procedurally um, happen on lots and lots of other legislation is also what happened with the NDA this year. You know, the NDA has sometimes remained as an exception to this trend, and we have often 
you know, continue to see formal conference committees on it. But in this case, again, we just saw uh, kind of Congress use a little bit of a procedural alternative, um, a less formal set of negotiations between the chambers to come to that kind of compromise final agreement on the legislation. So right now we're basically at the point where we've got both chambers on board. All we're waiting for is for President Biden to sign the bill, essentially, which he's indicated he intends to do, but I don't believe has done it yet unless it's happened today and I just haven't noticed it. Tell me, what are the kind of big standout framing items for this bill? What stands out to you that's particularly notable in terms of aspects of this bill? And I've got a few things I think are maybe worth flagging as well, particularly for law fair listeners around issues that we've got particular notes of interest in. Yeah, I think probably where I'd start, um, and I think, Scott, you're probably going to talk a little bit about kind of like the size of the budget for the Department of Defense that's authorized by this legislation and kind of where that fits into the conflict between the parties over time over the size of the defense budget. But I think that one of the biggest things that I took away from watching this year's NDAA is just that the NDAA, which, you know, has passed um, every year for decades and is often held out as kind of this exception to some of the dysfunction in Congress, is itself often now still under the same pressures that other pieces of legislation face. And for me, what typifies that in the case of the NDAA is that one of kind of the last stumbling blocks to negotiating the final agreement on the legislation was this provision um, related to a requirement um, for military service members to be vaccinated against COVID-19. And so obviously, like so many other things related to COVID, this had taken on, this requirement for um, service members had taken on a partisan valence. And it was in many ways not fundamentally about kind of military readiness. It was about, you know, where do the two parties stand on this still very polarized um, public health issue? And so ultimately, like that issue was resolved um, and the bill included a repeal of that um, requirement for uh, service members. But again, it just reminds me that even when the NDAA does pass, um, it often has to confront the same kinds of political hurdles that we see happening on so many other pieces of legislation. But I'm curious to hear kind of what you what your big takeaways are. Sure. Well, like you you already noticed, the size is really notable about this. And that's something that's kind of been framed interestingly as sort of a, a victory for Republicans in particular, and particularly, I guess, Republicans in the House who were pushing for this. The Biden administration came in with a, a no doubt robust still defense budget request, but had a couple of provisions in there for kind of streamlining the budget, reducing overall certain costs in various departments, trying to kind of right size the Pentagon budget. And got pushback from that from folks in Congress and particularly Republicans. I don't think this is, and you can correct me if you think you disagree with this, Molly, I don't think this is actually unique to this year. We often face this kind of like two-sided pressure to up the Pentagon budget because it's the one area where there seems to be bipartisan consensus to some extent, uh, particularly on the right, to increase funding or at least provide robust funding. Uh, And so you see kind of a not uncommon scenario where there's this pressure to increase the Pentagon and give even more money to the troops and a variety of other measures that ends up with these NDAAs and related appropriations bills and Pentagon budgets that are huge, you know, well outsize what a lot of other federal agencies spend and support all sorts of activities and sometimes include a lot of other activities that are stuff that you might think go with other agencies, but it's much easier to roll in with the Defense Department and military budget and so get kind of pulled in there. 
So this is no exception to that trend. If if anything, it's kind of a more notable instance in that the Biden administration has been, you know, faced a little pressure and appears along with Democrats in Congress to more or less have caved and say, okay, we'll take a bigger Pentagon budget if if you want to get there. It seems a little strange to say, hey, Mr. President, take more money than you asked for, and this is a, a win for the other side. But that's kind of how it's being framed uh, in this way. And it makes a little bit of sense. The Biden administration was trying to bring down to some extent or at least cabin growth in various certain types of Pentagon expenses. Getting more into specific programs, I think, underscores a little bit more where exactly those trade-offs were. We saw a lot of different proposals where the Biden administration's Pentagon was trying to wind down different weapons programs, get rid of different types of uh, technology, ships, jets, missiles, things like that, um, shift over to newer models, retire older models. All of these things take a lot of funding to support them, to develop them, to maintain them, make sure, make sure they're in working order. And kind of cycling out old technology is a common theme in terms of trying to find ways to make the Pentagon more efficient and keep the military both ready and something like affordable or more affordable than it might be otherwise. But there was a lot of pushback from this from folks in Congress. And so we see a lot of these old weapons programs, ship programs, procurement programs still being supported. Two of them are particularly notable that have maybe a bigger strategic or policy valence than just kind of overall defense spending relate to nuclear weapons programs and kind of related delivery vehicles. The Biden administration have pushed back on trying to expand or maintain sort of existing programs, one kind of a research and development program, one an existing stockpile they want to retire. The former is a kind of sea-launched cruise missile. This is a delivery vehicle that can be used presumably for a variety of things. I think also nuclear weapons, if I understand correctly. The Biden administration have basically argued like this missile system is kind of already redundant. They had already agreed to keep a research and development program for submarine-based, kind of low-yield, more tactical nuclear weapons that the Trump administration had put in place, or was put in place during the Trump administration, I should say. The Biden administration left that in place, and so they said, so this sea launch cruise missile is like a little redundant with that. We don't really need to do it. But Congress decided, yes, you do. You should stick with developing that capability. The other one is for these B-83 nuclear gravity bombs. This is uh, an older, as I understand it, stockpile of nuclear weapons. I think a larger scale, like very much non-tactical nuclear weapons. And the Biden administration had made moves to retire that, um, kind of arguably consistent with President Biden's kind of long-term view of trying to reduce the role of nuclear weapons. And in a lot of ways, this is kind of a Uh, one of relatively few concessions the Biden administration has made. In other places, it's really kept the Trump administration's efforts to modernize and in some way further develop and even arguably expand, at least in capabilities, the U.S. nuclear stockpile in different directions. They have swallowed a lot of what the Trump administration was doing, kept it alive. This was one area where they were trying to say, but let's retire these old weapons. Let's bring them off commission and and kind of reduce our overall nuclear uh, stockpile to focus on the things that are more strategically relevant, at least in our view. And again, Congress pushed back on that. And it looks like those those bombs will stay in commission. Again, these sorts of debates aren't unusual. You know, all sorts of specific weapons programs, very interestingly, even within the Defense Department, within the federal government, get kind of constituencies um, where they are arguing for their continuing relevance in the Defense Department or elsewhere. uh, And then those arguments make their way to Congress and they get certain advocates. Sometimes it has to do with where the developer or the manufacturer of those weapon systems um, happens to be based in the United States and local members of Congress have a strong economic incentive for their districts to try and keep them alive. Sometimes there's other factors. I think this may Maybe fits into other factors than those. So this isn't necessarily, I don't think either of these 
are new phenomenon. Um, but we all see we see both of them in kind of full force in this particular case, where it's one place where you know pressure from particularly the right in Congress appears to have led the Biden administration to kind of concede and say, okay, you want to do things this way, we'll do this, we'll trade away that in favor of some other items. Does that sound right to you, Molly? Yeah, I think it does. And so you uh, sort of gave a little bit of a like big picture um, uh, look here. I'm curious to hear also about some more specific things of interest um, that you noticed that maybe lawfare listeners will be interested in. This is much more your substantive area of expertise than mine. So I'd love to hear you talk about those. And then I have one to add at the end. Sure. Well, there are a lot of really kind of notable little fun and interesting for you are a lawfare reader and listener uh, and you're interested in these sorts of things, provisions that find their way into these NDAs every year. Um, and some really notable ones for advancing particularly particularly wonky policy priorities, whether it's different aspects of international affairs, different tactical or, or uh, geostrategic situations that you're trying to find different ways to address. This is one way Congress can really influence them by funding certain programs, setting new requirements, things like that. So a couple of things that really jump out that I think are notable, some new, some old and notable, and that they're still hanging around. You know, one thing that really jumped out as me is that we see a, a kind of pretty robust set of provisions really fleshing out a new security assistance architecture for Taiwan, and to some extent, the broader Indo-Pacific, but really focused on Taiwan. This is one part of kind of a wide array of provisions, some other which we'll touch on a little bit in other contexts, perhaps, but that really kind of hit the point that we're trying to, we mean the United States are trying to find ways to balance uh, China and particularly address the threat they've presented to Taiwan, which has been a big focus of the Biden administration. And we see that in play here where the NDAA um, sets up a whole new kind of legal architecture for providing different types of security assistance to Taiwan, focused on making it harder to invade, harder to occupy. It doesn't go any further in terms of providing any U.S. security guarantees. There's still the strategic ambiguity that's been the longstanding U.S. position, in part as reflected in legislation, in part through executive branch statements. That still is kind of the status quo, but really, really strong, robust congressional action in trying to build up new mechanisms to support Taiwan and its ability to push back against any sort of Chinese infringement or, or aggression. Similarly, there's a lot of provisions regarding Ukraine. We're going to get some of this in discussing the omnibus, which was kind of a, a kind of bigger question, but they similarly set up a lot of mechanisms for providing different types of security assistance, continuing a lot of ones, I should say, because a lot of these were put in place by legislation earlier this year, but building them out. A, a couple interesting provisions worth noting is that there's been a longstanding provision in the NDAA that restricts the use of funding for recognizing any sort of Russian claims over Crimea. This is kind of legally questionable slash controversial. Um, you know, the, the Supreme Court has said the recognition power is the president's, so Congress's ability to restrict it is at least a little bit of a legal question in this regard. Um, but the President Trump didn't choose to act contrary to it. It seems unlikely President Biden will. Um, but they've kind of doubled down on that and now expanded that to basically any sort of Russian claims over Ukrainian territory, including separatist areas of Ukraine, which is kind of a notable doubling down on that strategy of imposing that particular restriction. Um, they also have a, a number of provisions, a lot of sense of Congress resolutions, a lot of uh, more rhetorical items, and then uh, request for a report and information from the executive branch, focused on ways to support Ukrainian efforts to uh, secure 
consequences and accountability for war crimes and other violations of international law in Ukraine by Russian forces and by others, but particularly by Russian forces. It's interesting in the context of the U.S. relationship with groups like the International Criminal Court, um, which has often been very contentious, um, particularly during the Trump administration, which actually imposed sanctions on the International Criminal Court. But this kind of goes in a in a symbolic way, perhaps more than a substantive way, but symbolically pretty at least that's a pretty clear language, encouraging the executive branch to engage with the ICC, engage with other accountability mechanisms on the international level. That really is notable because that has been such a a kind of point of contention with folks, particularly on the right in Congress, that seeing them move in this direction, something we've seen hinted at in rhetoric by a lot of members of Congress, particularly Republicans like Senator Lindsey Graham, who's been very vocal in his support of the ICC investigations in Ukraine. But seeing that codified in this way, I think, is is notable and could make a difference in terms of tamping down or tampering some of the legal restrictions that people worry about might infringe some of these activities in the future. But it stops short of really doing anything too, too uh, binding uh, in terms of either directing this or lifting those restrictions. Um, notably, it also – there it was a separate provision that at some point was discussed about being included in the NDA that actually would expand U.S. prosecutorial authority to extend to different types of international war crimes – that didn't make its way in any of this legislation, but Congress actually passed that, or the Senate, I should say, independently passed that um, just in the last day or two uh, at the time of recording. And so we may see separate congressional action on that. That kind of it's dovetails with these other provisions. So once we get kind of China and Russia out of the way, um, there's a couple of little more specific, interesting provisions that are worth uh, noting and flagging in here. There is a a couple of provisions relating to kind of civilian harm. This has been a big focus in advocacy communities for a long time and of the Defense Department over the last year, motivated in part by some really phenomenal reporting by journalists highlighting and documenting some of the high civilian costs of U.S. military operations in Syria and elsewhere. This NDAA procures money for, or I should say, authorizes the creation of and authorizes the appropriation of the money for a creation of a center of excellence. This was a proposal that the Defense Department came out with earlier this year, contingent on getting congressional approval, which they now have, to set up essentially an independent center to try and overhaul and provide a variety of measures that really will hopefully help mitigate degree of civilian harm. Um, There's also provision in here that directs the Defense Department to get an independent audit, essentially, by an outside party of some of its civilian harm numbers. That has been a constant source of contention with the outside community in terms of suspicions DOD is not adequately accounting for potential civilian harm. And so that's actually a pretty notable measure saying you've got to actually take steps to do independent auditing and review of your measures there. So that's kind of an interesting progression that's consistent a lot of way with the Biden administration's policy, maybe pushes a little bit in certain directions further than it might have gone otherwise. And then I think there's at least one notable something old and one notable something new that's worth flagging, particularly for lawfare listeners. One is that this NDAA keeps in place uh, a lot of the Guantanamo transfer restrictions that have become familiar features of the NDAA, often very controversial. Um, But these significantly restrict the ability of the president to transfer detainees out of Guantanamo under a variety of conditions. It's notable, actually, the way um, at least Democrats and relevant and the Defense Armed Services Committee were framing this uh, was really kind of framing it as we prevented the expansion <laughs> of these transfer restrictions because there are various ideas about expanding them to make it harder to do different types of transfers, even where you might have uh, a country receptive to receiving an individual. But nonetheless, these restrictions remain in place and more or less are the same what they've had before. There's a slightly new application about transfers to Afghanistan restricting that, as I recall. 
something new that's actually quite new and hasn't gotten a lot of attention, but is really worth flagging is that there is a pretty robust new set of rules for basically international agreement transparency that have been put in place. There's been a little, we've seen some writing about that in Lawfare by uh, Ona Hathaway, Jack Goldsmith, and Kurt Bradley, the three of whom wrote a pretty influential Harvard Law Review article about this last year, which pulled together a lot of empirical data they secured through FOIA actions, documenting that the executive branches reporting of various types of international agreements, particularly different types of executive agreements, had fallen far short of what the actual statutory mandate for that is under a law called the Case Act that dates back to the 1970s, and also flagged or it became kind of flagged over the course of discussions that there's a big question about the use of non-binding arrangements. These are kind of strictly often rhetorical and formal arrangements with foreign countries that nonetheless often have a lot of political salience and serve to structure bilateral and multilateral relations in ways that are a lot like international agreements just without the binding nature of international law behind them. And so uh, there has been an effort for several years, actually, throughout this Congress to get a new transparency and reporting regime in place that sets stricter requirements on the reporting of all sorts of executive agreements and certain types of non-binding arrangements or agreements as well. That finally made its way into this NDAA, uh, again, after having failed to kind of be attached and incorporated into a number of other pieces of legislation over the last few years. So it's a really interesting bill, and it's one that promises both that Congress is going to get a lot more information on those mechanisms moving forward, and that the public might as well in terms of that information becoming more available either through congressional releases or some of this other data that they're providing and, and bringing out there. There's obviously a ton more in this bill. It's a giant, thousand, multiple thousand-page bill um, to talk about. We may have more follow-up on there, but those to me are some of the big major highlights worth flagging right now. Molly, I know you mentioned you had at least one. What, what, what caught your eye in terms of interesting things in here? So I'll say that on, on a scale of consequential, um, this is perhaps not especially important, but I think it's, uh, it's worth noting. It's a little bit, um, it's a little bit fun, which is that the legislation also includes a uh, provision that would uh, posthumously appoint uh, Ulysses S. Grant to be general of the armies of the United States, which is uh, the highest rank in the army. It's only been conferred twice previously once to General Pershing um, and once to George Washington. Um, and this is, uh, it was spearheaded by um, Sherrod Brown, senator from Ohio, where Grant was born, and then also um, by Senator Roy Blunt, who is um, from Missouri, and Representative Ann Wagner, who's also from Missouri. And, and I think the sort of consensus here is just that um, Grant's skill as a military general uh, is was perhaps underappreciated, uh, and uh, his reputation as president was really shaped by some skills that happened while he was in office. And so this is just a reminder that sometimes in the very fine print of these multi-thousand page legislation, uh, pieces of legislation, there are interesting things to be um, to be learned about. Um, before we sort of pivot um, and I think talk about the omnibus spending bill, um, I think we also want to talk a little bit about what didn't make it into the NDAA. And I think Scott in particular, I'd love to hear your thoughts on um, AUMF repeal, since that's an issue that I know you have worked on quite a bit. And then I will also talk a little bit about um, something that's really not directly related to defense, but was um, perhaps seen as a potential add-on to this legislation. 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, as you've already noted, um, there was a discussion for a very long time for the second year in a row about including at least one really historically notable repeal proposal that would have repealed the 2002 Iraq authorization for use of military force. This is the law Congress enacted in 2002, basically to authorize US-led invasion of Iraq in 2003, but then has been used for a lot of other purposes in the subsequent 20 years. Uh, I'll do a little self-plug. <laughs> uh, I wrote a kind of two-part effort to be a comprehensive history of this AUMF in lawfare uh, just a couple weeks ago, because precisely to try to inform some of this debate um, and to lay out what I see as, a, I think, a pretty strong case for repealing that law um, because of the way it's been interpreted so broadly and could be used that way in the future. But for the second year in a row, we saw the provision make it into the House version of the bill, but then get pulled and fail in the Senate version not to make it in. That's despite having really, really strong and robust bipartisan support, interestingly, in the Senate. The, the actual proposal that's put forward by Senator Kane and Senator Young, a Democrat Republican, uh, both members of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, Senator Kane at least is a member of Armed Services as well. I don't, or I don't know if Senator Young as we might be. They uh, actually have enough Republican co-sponsors that it seems like it could overcome a filibuster um, if they could actually get uh, enough votes. I believe they have 11 uh Republican co-sponsors, if I recall correctly, um, assuming all Democrats would act on board with this. But it's one of these provisions that has some pushback, and some of the strongest pushback is from Republicans on the Senate Armed Services Committee, particularly um, the ranking member, uh, Senator Risch, um, who is fairly influential in this domain. And so I suspect that there has been an effort to uh, keep this from getting to the Senate version last two years that's been successful. And so that means back to the drawing board on this proposal. Um, this this repeal pro- proposal has been introduced as freestanding legislation, both in this Congress um, for the last two years and in the prior Congress. I suspect it's going to be proposed again in the coming Congress, but who knows if the prospects will change or if the House will be less amenable to it under uh, House Republican control. Worth noting as well, in the in recent past, mostly in the context of the last NDAA, there was also proposals to repeal other kind of historical AUMFs that are still on the books. That really wasn't a focus of this, nor was there much effort to talk about the 2001 AUMF. The focus was really trying to make this 2002 AUMF repeal happen. But for better or for worse, it appears to have fallen short this time in the NDAA. There may be other vehicles that's going to be incorporated into, although I don't see any on the horizon, certainly at this late date. So my suspicion is that we're back to the drawing board on this particular proposal, but we will wait and see. Yeah. So the other thing that I just want to note that didn't make it into the NDAA um, is this provision or this piece of legislation that was championed by Senator Joe Manchin, Democrat of West Virginia, which would have sort of changed the way that the federal energy infrastructure permitting process works. When in August, um, Congress passed the Inflation Reduction Act, which uh, included a series of um, tax changes as well as um, healthcare policy changes and climate provisions, um, part of the deal negotiated by Majority Leader Schumer and Senator Manchin to get Senator Manchin's support for that legislation was that uh, Schumer would uh, hold a vote on legislation that would make these changes to the permitting process that Manchin has championed for a long time. Um, and, you know, again, oh, this was this was part of the, the deal that got that big health and climate uh, legislation passed. And in at least Manchin's view, the kind of permitting changes that are in the legislation he's pushed for are um, necessary to sort of um, realize some of the, the benefits of um, other changes uh, made in recent legislation. And so there's a lot of talk about exactly kind of what form would this take. And um, back in September, there was discussion of whether Manchin would insist on it in exchange for um, some things then. And so 
there was this question of whether it was going to be in the NDAA. Um, and then ultimately, um, it was offered um, as, I believe, as an amendment that then did not get uh, the 60 votes needed to adopt it. And so sort of leaves that out of the bill. And again, it's just a reminder of the ways in which this piece of legislation, while being, you know, at its core about defense and national security um, also ends up as a target um, and getting implicated in other political fights. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called My Life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have My Life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes 
any personal information you don't want online and make sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story that, you know, they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back and then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. So, Molly, we've already kind of hinted at the fact that the NDAA is one part of kind of two key, two-part process for setting up the legal authorities and funding for various national defense-related stuff for the coming year. The second part is the appropriations process, where at some point in history, there was an independent defense appropriations bill that matches the NDAA. But today, and as has been the case for many years now, instead, we tend to see the defense appropriations bill rolled in with a bunch of other appropriations legislation into a big end of year omnibus, which is currently in the process of being debated. We saw both chambers reach an agreement on it earlier uh, this week pretty late in the game. Now the Senate's going through and going through a number of votes on different provisions that may or may not be incorporated into it, although I think the odds are generally slim for most of them. Tell us a little bit about where this fits in the process, where we are, and what we should be expecting out of this omnibus process with the time left uh, for us this year. Yeah. So um, if we think of the NDAA as sort of one legislative train that leaves the station every year, we should think of an omnibus appropriations bill as the other one. And you're absolutely right that under the kind of process prescribed by the Congressional Budget Act, Congress is supposed to take up um, separately 12, it's currently 12 um, appropriations bills, each of which addresses a different set of federal functions. There is one for the Department of Defense. Um, They're supposed to take those up individually, debate them, come to agreement across the chambers, and then send them to the president's desk for his um, his signature or veto. And uh, Congress simply has not done a great job um, for really two decades um, in processing the uh, appropriations bills on um, an individual basis, nor has it done a great job of getting them completed on time, uh, which is to say before the federal fiscal year starts on October 1st. And so frequently we end up kind of where we are 
right now, literally as we record this, which is that um, the House and the Senate are still in Washington trying to finish work on this bill ahead of Christmas, ahead of a, in this case, big winter storm. Um, And the bill itself just uh, becomes basically too big to fail. Um, It is true, and I think we'll talk about this a little bit, which is that there was sort of a last ditch effort, uh, particularly on the part of a group of Senate Republicans to try and sink the omnibus entirely, led by um, by Michael Lees, a Republican senator from Utah. And the kind of rationale here is that if the omnibus um, had failed, then Congress, in order to avoid a shutdown of the government over Christmas, would have probably adopted a short-term continuing resolution that kept federal funding going at kind of existing levels. They probably would have done that into some time um, early next year uh, when Republicans will control the House. And so there was this idea that um, Republican from very uh, sort of conservative um, Republicans who really don't want to see the levels of federal spending that are uh, encoded in this bill, that they would be better off um, if Congress took up this question um, when Republicans have more power in the new year. I think there was a sense from many others, including many Republicans, that um, punting this question to the new year would actually just set the conference up for failure on a kind of the first big agenda item um, of uh, the 118th Congress. And so there's a lot of interest in really trying to get this done before Christmas. Um, And so that's kind of where we are. So, you know, we'll, I think actually think most of what we're going to talk about that's of interest that made it into the omnibus is a couple of things that are not directly spending related, um, but it does most fundamentally make large appropriations for both the defense and non-defense sides of the budget. Um, if you talk to Democrats and Republicans, um, they will frame those in different ways and they will talk about, you know, is this an increase in, affl- in inflation-adjusted terms um, versus a cut in inflation-adjusted terms, that sort of thing. But suffice to say, uh, getting an actual um, appropriations package done was really important um, because continued continuing resolutions um, are, are quite bad for federal agencies. Um, the Pentagon in particular is not a fan of um, just keeping things going at kind of continued levels temporarily. And so I think, you know, assuming that Congress does manage to get this over the finish line, I think it, even if the process isn't what we would be most excited about, particularly in the, in the end stages, uh, it is a, a fundamental achievement for Congress. So we can talk a little bit about things that ended up getting hooked on to the um, to the omnibus. Maybe Scott, if you want to uh, talk about some highlights first, then I'll talk about a couple other ones. I do think one of the biggest items that has gotten a fair amount of press attention, but is worth kind of drilling into the details on a little bit, is the fact that this omnibus does include a really substantial amount of assistance for Ukraine, or at least related to assistance for Ukraine, about forty five billion. I think technically forty four point nine billion dollars well above the level actually requested by the Biden administration, which was actually um, a a substantial uh, amount of money to begin with. And it does it in kind of an interesting way. Part of a good big chunk of that fund is actually being used to kind of restock American supplies that under a separate authority, the president has the authority called drawdown authority that the president can and has been transferring to Ukraine. 
If I recall correctly, I think that transfer authority is something like $11 billion a year, and this basically gives $11 billion to resupply that. This essentially w- should allow the Biden administration to max out its use of the drawdown authority without substantially diminishing or depleting U.S. supply. So it's actually important to have the sort of reply- supply efforts. And then there's this other provision that gives uh, about $9 billion, as I recall, indirect uh, assistance to Ukraine through the Ukraine Security Assistance Initiative. And interestingly, it basically gives that initiative two kind of unique characteristics. One, it says this bucket of funds is actually good through almost the end of 2024, until September 2024, past the kind of usual year horizon. Um, although, you know, different types of assistance initiatives tend to have slightly different windows uh, depending on their purpose. And then also essentially enables that assistance initiative to accept donations, presumably from foreign countries, although it actually doesn't limit that. So I think as in theory, it could be from private individuals that then can be rolled into those funds and made available for the same purposes, basically gives the government this kind of easy transfer authority for when it receives donations. And that allows them essentially and uh, gives the Biden administration this vehicle that it can use to provide substantial assistance to Ukraine through September 2024 even in excess of the substantial $9 billion being given here if other countries come in and match it. And that can be used to provide a wide variety of security assistance, including a lot of stuff that just the United States can provide or can provide most effectively, like different types of training or high-end technology or supports for weapon systems, U.S. manufactured weapon systems that other allies can't, which is why they may want to channel their support through this particular avenue. The politics around that are kind of interesting. You know, We've seen Republicans in Congress get stuck in a difficult position in a, in a sense in that they are trying to walk a line where they say, as Kevin McCarthy reiterated just today following Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky's visit yesterday to Washington, D.C., saying, we support Ukraine wholeheartedly, um, but we don't like blank checks, uh, and suggesting they're going to subject Ukrainian assistance to more scrutiny. And that's a really difficult line for Republicans to walk uh, in that they will be essentially uh, want to not look like they're undermining Ukraine. That's the effort to support Ukraine is pretty, pretty politically popular, including among Republican voters. But they also want to find ways to criticize and push back against what the Biden administration is doing. And this kind of provides an avenue to do that, where assistance to Ukraine can keep flowing, but it's not no longer contingent on Congress. So it allows the Biden administration to pursue its policy initiatives while limiting, not take, totally removing away by any means, but kind of limiting those choke points uh, where the House could be put in a difficult position and where it could actually end up obstructing the flow of that assistance. Um, so it's kind of an interesting arrangement with potential long-term implications here over the next year or two, at least, that that's worth flagging that hopefully she'll make Ukraine assistance easier uh, along the lines the Biden administration is pursuing it thus far. The second big proposal worth noting is one we've spent a lot of time on at Lawfare. That's the Electoral Count Reform Act. That is a set of reforms that has been negotiated very carefully, very kind of quietly by a bipartisan group led by Amy Klobuchar and Susan Collins and a few others over the last few years that tries to address a lot of the weaknesses in the process used to select presidents that were almost capitalized upon or efforts were made to capitalize upon in 2020 to find different ways to turn the election in former President Trump's favor um, by different parties. It does a variety of things that are probably a little too technical to go into too much detail here, but the main thing it does essentially is try and lock in the laws in place that states put in place governing the election and selection of electors prior to election day. So it tries to curb the risk uh, that some state legislature will try and step in after the elections if it doesn't like the results and give its electoral votes, the state's electoral votes to another candidate. That's something that was debated in the 2020 context. And this tries to curb that, although there may be 
constitutional arguments as to why that won't be entirely effective. And it takes a number of other provisions to try and solidify, narrow the grounds on which people can, in Congress, can object to the electoral votes filed on behalf of certain states' electors and kind of solidifies and makes a little more secure the process by which the results are communicated from states to the Congress so that they can actually avoid what almost happened in 2020 in some cases about slates of fake electors somehow being put forward. So this is a pretty big set of reforms. Uh, People were worried about it towards the end, at least in part because it was always been pursued in this kind of quiet way. And so the politics around, I think, were a little hard to read with much confidence, but it did finally make it its omnibus bill and it seems set um, to eventually enacted. Worth noting something that I noticed while we were prepping for the session that I think is interesting and kind of reflects some of the politics around this. Neither parties, as far as I can tell, their summaries and highlights of the bill even makes mention of this. Um, instead, it's in there. It's pretty notable addition, but not something that's being trumpeted by by either side. And uh, that makes it kind of a, uh, a unique law in a unique process that that's come out this year. Yeah, I mean, so I think that on this, on that kind of last point you made, Scott, like this is a thing that we see sometimes, which is that certain provisions um, are more successful at making their way to passage if we don't talk about them. Um, Obviously, we talked a great deal about kind of the development um, and debate over this proposal to reform the Electoral Count Act, um, which was worked on, as you said, by members of the Senate and marked up in Senate committees earlier this year. But then I think in part to sort of get it across the finish line and given the way that some of the issues related either directly or less directly to January 6th have gotten increasingly politicized. And obviously the January 6th committee is in the process of releasing its final report and documents. I think that this this notion that maybe if we sort of didn't talk about the fact that Electoral Count Act reform was in the omnibus, that that would perhaps make it less likely that someone would use its presence to jeopardize the prospect in the overall bill. A um, couple other things just to, to note. So one that may be of interest to lawfare listeners is that Included in um, the omnibus is a, a provision that will ban government devices um, from having TikTok on them. This is a, a proposal that um, is actually associated with a couple, most prominent with a couple of Republican members, particularly Republican senators. And it's just a good reminder that even in a really polarized and partisan institution, sometimes there are things that the minority party really, some members of the minority party really want to see done that can get enacted. And then the other thing I'll note um, before I let Scott sort of chime in with what I think is his equivalent of the Ulysses S. Grant uh, provision, which is that um, another thing that is in the omnibus are um, designated congressionally directed um, spending projects. So we used to refer to these as earmarks. Um, The newer terms of art are congressionally directed spending or community project funding, which is the kind of formal term the appropriations committees use. And basically, these are projects that individual uh, members of the House and the Senate were able to um, request, uh, put in requests to the appropriations committees in their respective chambers from specific defined um, accounts in specific appropriations bills and say, you know, out of this account in this bill, I would like this amount of money for this specific project that is either a state or local government project in my district or state or is um, a project of a nonprofit in my state or district. And this is the second year that we've had kind of the return of congressionally directed spending. So it's present for um, a long time up until about 2010 um, when Republicans 
in the majority abolished the use of these projects, and at least the projects in congressional bills. Um, in many cases, the money out of these programs was still being spent. It was just that the executive branch was making the decisions about where to direct the funds. And so I bring this up um, because I think I know that a lot of Lawfare listeners are and readers are interested in like questions of congressional power. And I think that this is indication that congressionally directed spending and the ability of members of Congress to um, advocate for and direct resources to their own districts is a really important kind of separation of powers, power of the purse question. So it's it's Congress's responsibility to to steer the ship of the federal budget. And like I said, even in the period of time when Congress was not including specific projects in appropriations bills at the request of individual members, the money was generally still getting spent. Um, and it was it's just we had much less visibility into it, and it was be decisions about it were being made um, by the executive branch. And so, for um, this is a this is a good and healthy development for fans of congressional power, of which I certainly count myself as one of them. Um, and so, uh, initial indications are that Republicans um, are likely to keep this process in place or some version of it going forward when they take control of the House. And so, that's also um, also encouraging. So Scott, tell us a little bit about um, a provision in the omnibus related to academy athletes. Yes, thank you, Molly. This is one of my favorite stories to come out of this kind of weird process we've seen this year because it relates to both the NDAA and the Omnibus Appropriations Act. This year's NDAA contained a provision that repealed a rule that had been inserted by an earlier NDAA a couple of years ago that allowed for service academy members, people, students at service academies like the Air Force Academy at West Point, who were student athletes and received contracts to play professional sports, obviously incredibly lucrative uh, opportunities and ones that are very contingent on being young and healthy, would al- the prior provision would have allowed them to go ahead and take those professional contracts upon receiving a waiver from the Defense Department. The NDAA for this year inserted a provision repealing that rule or modifying it to say, no, they had to serve for two years, in fact, before they could get any such waiver. Well, people appear to have reconsidered that since they agreed to the NDAA language, the omnibus now repeals that law that has been on the books for all of, actually hasn't actually officially been on the books because Biden hasn't signed the NDAA, but essentially reverses that rule and reinstates the pre-existing rule, allowing for these academy athletes to go ahead and get a waiver right off the bat and make the most of their healthy, youthful uh, days on a professional contract. So kind of an interesting little lesson there about how the even when you have the exact same Congress and the exact same people voting, the different processes these two bills pursue and the different committees with control over them, um, and the fact that nobody could possibly read all of them in the narrow time frame that they are being voted on can have can kind of odd results sometimes. Yes, like I said, I feel like that's your um, your equivalent of um, the Ulysses S. Grant proposal uh, provision that I talked about in the um, in the NDA. So let's talk a little bit about some things that didn't make it into the omnibus bill. Largely, again, things that were proposed as or talked about as potential um, add-ons that just sort of got left behind at the station um, as the as the train pulled away. Um, so, Scott, um, I know that you. And Lockhart listeners are have been sort of paying attention, in particular one involving um, Afghan. 
Yeah, there's two kind of provisions that I think are worth, particularly worth noting that didn't make it in here. Um, one that the administration have put forward, um, and another one that is this Afghan Adjustment Act that has become the source of a lot of advocacy in the last few months, really, but particularly the last few days as its supporters try and find a vehicle for it. Um, the Afghan Adjustment Act is a bill that would have provided uh, the thousands of Afghan nationals that are here in the United States under parole authority, kind of discretionary authority the president's able to use under existing statutes to allow people to remain in the country who otherwise wouldn't be legally allowed to remain in the country. This law would have provided them a path to normal, normalize their status. Um, when you're under parole status, it affects your ability to secure employment, uh, to get all sorts of benefits. It really limits them in a lot of regards. Uh, and you can be eligible for deportation at a certain point after the parole period expires. There's ways that that can be kind of extended uh, de facto in certain ways by limiting enforcement, things like that. But it becomes a little more tricky and particularly under a different administration with a different president who doesn't agree with those policies. You could see you know, deportation potentially becoming an, another issue. Unfortunately, uh, for those who support that sort of measure, this Afghan Adjustment Act never made it into the omnibus appropriations bill as many people hoped it would. Um, nor was it made into the pack. Did it make it into the package of amendments that we have seen the Senate voting on, even as we're recording right now, uh, with some interesting results there that we'll hopefully talk about in a few minutes. Instead, it looks like it doesn't have a clear path forward for this Congress. And its odds in the next Congress seem pretty restricted as well. It, it got very bogged down despite very vocal support uh, among both parties for Afghan nationals in a lot of regards, and particularly former allies, got bogged down in a lot of messy politics uh, we have around immigration uh, and ultimately killed by folks who um, are very resistant to anything that looks like more easier path to immigration and normalization um, along fairly partisan lines. Um, so, so the odds of that act may not be particularly good in the next Congress uh, with a Republican-controlled House either. Um, so it's not clear exactly what its ultimate fate will be, but but it may not be a good one, at least in, in the near term. Another provision worth noting that didn't really make any here is, is it has to do with pandemic assistance. The Biden administration really pushed to get uh, a lot of new funding in to the omnibus that was intended to help deal with a lot of the ongoing consequences and expenses for states, for businesses, for lots of other uh, related entities relating to the COVID-19 pandemic uh, in its various iterations that we're still wrestling with despite uh, a return to normalcy. Um, but that assistance also didn't make it into the omnibus uh, bill. You know, The reporting on it at least suggests that there is just a lot of fatigue around these sorts of issues, even in Congress, and hesitancy to move away from the narrative of a return to normalcy despite ongo real ongoing costs and challenges um, that the pandemic is still still facing, even as we've gone to a more normal world that looks a little more post-pandemic than the one we were living through. Um, but that didn't make it in either. Uh, and it's not clear there's going to really, it seems unlikely there's going to be any other vehicle to make that happen, certainly in this Congress. And again, the odds probably are even slimmer in the next Congress. So uh, the Biden administration will have to deal with the uh, you know those ongoing legacies of covid-19 with the resources that has available to it presently doesn't look like a lot more coming down the pike so molly as we've been recording this we have both been kind of errantly keeping an eye on our social media platforms of choice to see what is happening in congress because there are votes happening as we speak on this package of amendments that the senate agreed to consider to be able to move to a final vote on the omnibus appropriations act and there's been actually a couple maybe surprising results that that adjust the bottom line. Tell us a little bit about how and why we're seeing these last minute amendment votes, where the process goes from here in terms of the House and 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 how they fit into the broader political and policy framework around the appropriations bill and appropriations process. 
Yeah, so I think it's worth um, reflecting briefly on sort of the general environment for amending legislation in both the House, but especially in the Senate in this context, in the contemporary Congress, which is to say that we basically never see bills come to the floor in either chamber for anything that looks like an open amendment process, um, where anyone can offer whatever amendment they want, um, and the amendments are come for up or down votes. In both chambers, we really see just negotiated processes. In the House, this um, is kind of codified through the House Rules Committee, but in the Senate, it's really done through negotiations between the party leaders about you know, which amendments will get votes and at what threshold will that um, will that vote take place? Will it be a vote that is just a simple majority for adoption or will it be a supermajority for adoption? And so one of the um, things that can happen in these situations is that, um, and we saw this happen last night, is that if a member um, of the Senate has something that they really care about and are really willing to potentially sink an overall bill over, they can really dig in and say, no, I will not let things proceed unless I get a vote on my amendment. And there are sometimes a couple of ways that the Senate finds its way out of um, these stalemates. Sometimes they agree that, okay, we will have a vote on your amendment, but we'll say in our agreement, um, allowing the vote, that your amendment is requires 60 votes to be adopted, even though it's not going through sort of a formal cloture motion process. And so that will often allow for the vote, but everyone involved knows that it won't actually get the 60 and so that it won't be added to the bill. And um, the other thing that we sometimes see, which is what happened um, today uh, with a pair of amendments, one from Senator Mike Lee of Utah, and then one offered by Senators um, Tester and Cinema, both Democrats. And they both involved um, Title 42, which is the authority that is related to the current um, posture on um, the southern border and folks being admitted to the country that's also related to the COVID pandemic that's become sort of a, yet another flashpoint in the um, debates over immigration policy. Basically, um, what we had was what we call side-by-sides. So uh, Senator Lee got a vote on his amendment. Tester and Cinema got a vote on their amendment. The expectation is that both amendments would fail. Both did, but they gave you know, folks who wanted to be on the record in various ways, the opportunity to do so. And so, again, this is, it's not always the case that a fight over amendments like the one that we saw threatens to jeopardize a bill as big as the omnibus, but this underlying dynamic um, around negotiated amendments and giving people the chance to vote for things and protecting members from tough votes, like that's very common and really what we see a lot of um, in, in the Senate these days. Um, I think there are a couple of amendments that um, the Senate considered uh, today that, Scott, you want to talk a little bit about before we end. That's right, Molly. So we actually saw two of these amendments uh, have passed now with, I think, the operational assumption that if they pass the Senate, the House is likely to agree to them in the interest of moving this forward uh, as opposed to having the omnibus deal fall apart. Um, one is an act uh, called the Fairness for 9-11 Victims that have been a focus of Senator Cotton, among others. This is a bill that essentially um, tops off an existing uh, fund that Congress established a few years ago that pays off uh, victims of various terrorist attacks, including the 9-11 attacks and some other attacks, helps them satisfy certain judgments or, or otherwise receive compensation. 
out of a fund that was initially funded by funds seized or forfeited by banks or other companies that kind of pled malfeasance in cooperating with terrorist groups or otherwise violating the law, usually sanctions laws that paid into this big fund. That fund then got exhausted even as other victims were were seeking compensation. And so this amendment both kind of provides additional funds for that fund uh, and expands the scope to include victims of 1983 Marine Barracks bombing. That was Senator Cotton's big focus and uh, a big emphasis on this particular amendment that he appears to have successfully persuaded the Senate to adopt. The second one of, of perhaps more policy relevance moving forward is that there is a provision sponsored by Senator Lindsey Graham that relates to the seizure of um, assets or perhaps forfeitures, a better way to describe it, related to Russia and transferring them to Ukraine uh, as foreign assistance. There's a little confusion as to which exact version of the bill this is. Um, I believe my understanding is uh, um, from chatting folks and looking online, I think this is a version of a provision of a law that was actually originally going to be included in the NDAA, was included in the House version, but ended up getting pulled out of the Senate version of the NDAA on the basis that people objected that it wasn't properly vetted by the Judiciary Committees uh, and therefore had jurisdictional issues among it essentially within Congress. Um, But essentially what the provision, if it is that provision, would do is that it would allow funds seized from Russian oligarchs or other individuals under existing civil forfeiture and criminal forfeiture statutes to be immediately put into a fund and provided to Ukraine as a form of foreign assistance, therefore evading a kind of somewhat onerous and much more complicated bureaucratic process the executive branch would have to follow to do something like that. Um, This streamlines that pretty effectively. This is part of a set of reforms the Biden administration requested, as far as I know, the only part that's gotten into law right now, um, but certainly a useful and important one. So that appears to be the amendment that they've adjusted. There's a possibility, because we haven't actually found the text for this amendment yet, this is what happens because these things happen so quickly. There's a possibility it, it might also incorporate parts of other proposals that were debated in the context of the NDAA and other legislation that actually would authorize seizing Russian assets, particularly Russian central bank assets. I don't believe that's the case um, from looking at this. I think this is primarily the narrower initial provision about providing that foreign assistance authority for forfeited funds. Um, seizure is a more complicated legal issue, as we've discussed on the podcast, uh, and actually have a podcast episode coming forward on in the next couple of days. So there, that's a complicated issue there. Uh, I don't believe that's included in this, but I could be wrong. And if I am wrong, I will I will try and uh, correct that uh, on on Twitter or elsewhere um, to correct it. But I think this is is primarily about that for foreign assistance authority related to forfeiture. Now, Molly, people have might have caught on to uh, over the course of this podcast where we are trying to keep on up with these sometimes unpredictable developments in real time as we record. It is a pretty chaotic process here at the end of the year where we get probably by page count a good chunk of the legislation that each Congress actually enacts in these last minute rushes through the NDAA and Consolidated Appropriations Act, these kind of two big omnibus vehicles, kind of the two big omnibus vehicles these days. But we've seen some calls coming forward again this year, echoing calls prior year, although maybe with a little more heft, um, particularly from uh, outgoing uh, Majority Leader Steny Hoyer in the House, where he's really just kind of announced, as far as I can tell, that he's going to make a big focus of his kind of post-leadership days where he's still in the House, but he's no longer playing a leadership role, to trying to persuade Congress to actually start enacting annual authorizations and appropriations bills separately, not as part of this big omnibus process, but to do it independently. That was something Congress used to do several 
decades ago at this point, somebody actually noted on Twitter, which I, I believe is true, the youngest incoming member of the House, um, a gentleman from Florida, is actually was born after the last time Congress actually enacted 12 independent bills in that way. But nonetheless, there's this interest in trying to restore individual committees to having the same sort of influence the Armed Services Committee has over defense issues through the NDAA by having separate pieces of legislation like this moving forward. Tell us a little bit about what that return to regular order might actually look like and whether there's any prospects of this actually happening with, with Hoyer support or not. Yeah. So um, Steady Hoyer, who is remaining in the House, but stepping down from his um, leadership post in the House Democratic Caucus, is not the first member to say, to call for a return to regular order. Um, There's lots of talking a big game and then not following through on it. Um, And that really just reflects, I think, the realities of partisanship and polarization in the contemporary Congress. And so when, first of all, I think it's worth noting that it's not really clear that there is some sort of golden age of regular order that we want to return to. This is a place where folks can fall victim to some kind of excessive nostalgia. Um, What I do think is important is to um, ask detailed questions about, you know, what is it about so-called regular order that we're trying to capture with changes to the legislative process? And how could we accomplish those? And is it really necessary to do 12 separate appropriations bills, for example, to get to realize those objectives? And so I think in the case of the appropriations process, for example, I am much more concerned about whether the process is falling apart at the committee level than I am in whether it's you know, deviating from the prescribed number of bills that are considered separately on the floor. So I think, you know, we want to make sure we're preserving the careful deliberative work that the subcommittees of each chamber's appropriations committee do to put together these bills. Um, And then it's less important to me um, whether they come to the floor in one big bill or in a couple of smaller packages, um, that sort of thing, uh, by the the sort of the same token. It's much more important to me that Congress gets this done uh, in a timely fashion and doesn't rely on uh, a series of continued short-term uh, spending bills, these temporary continuing resolutions, those are bad for agencies. And then by extension, the millions of Americans who the programs that agencies run serve. And so I think we really want to just be specific about what we're trying to optimize in terms of things like the NDAA for whether other programs should receive the same kind of yearly reauthorization that the defense programs in the NDAA do. I think there's a lot of value to spending more time, to Congress spending more time authorizing programs than it does now. The authorization process um, in Congress really has fallen apart um, in recent decades. And so I do think there are other programs I don't know that, that should receive that kind of attention. I don't I think in many cases, every year is not the right timetable. So the Farm Bill, for example, which is our piece of legislation that um, authorizes farm price supports and nutrition programs is on a roughly five-year authorization, uh, reauthorization cycle. And so I think there are, again, there are places where this is important and places there would be real value to it. I don't think we're going to return to some sort of kind of mythical regular order in large part because it's not clear to me that we ever lived in that world. Um, But I do... a subject very close to my heart. I do a lot of work on congressional reform and modernization. And so I think there's a lot of work to be done. Uh, there's good work that's been done in recent years. Um, I think there's more work to be done. But I don't necessarily think just calling for a return to regular order is um, is going to get us where we need to go. 
Well, on that note, we will have to leave the conversation there. But Molly, thank you so much for joining me here today on the Lawfare Podcast in this uh, late-breaking, somewhat chaotic recording session. Greatly appreciate it. (laughs) My pleasure. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Please be sure to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And check out Lawfare's other podcasts, including Rational Security, a casual, lighthearted chat about national security news that I co-host each week with my colleagues Gwenda Jurassic and Alan Rosenstein. Also, be sure to visit lawfareblog.com for extensive written coverage of national security law and policy issues, and consider becoming a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare to gain access to an ad-free version of this and other Lawfare podcasts, among other perks. This podcast was edited by Jen Patcha Howe, and our audio engineer was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening.